You are tuned in to the Jackson Hole Connection, sharing fascinating stories of people connected to Jackson Hole. I am truly grateful for each of you for tuning in today. And support for this podcast comes from Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling, bringing the Jackson Hole community residential and commercial food waste composting options. Call 307-733-7678 for more information. I begin today's episode with a little quote from Nelson Mandela. Education is the most powerful weapon which you can use to change the world. And welcome to episode number 247. And today's guest is Ethan Lobdell, the executive director of the Jackson Hole Children's Museum. Being raised on a farm in New Hampshire, Ethan was raised to embrace and enjoy the great outdoors. Ethan was first introduced to Jackson Hole through a college friend where he got to come out and backcountry ski and later moved here to teach. In addition to teaching and now leading an important community partner in the development of children here in Jackson Hole, Ethan also volunteers his time as a team member of Teton County Search and Rescue. This guy has plenty on his plate. And what Ethan and I get to talk about today is the what is on the horizon for the Children's Museum and the, the importance of that relationship that the Children's Museum has with this community and the development of our young children. Ethan, thank you for joining me today here at the Jackson Hole Connection. Delightful to have some of your time and be able to dive into uh, life here in Jackson Hole with you. Thanks, Stefan. It's great to be here. Yes, sir. Well, let's start off, Ethan, with a little bit of background about you. Where did you, where were you born and grow up? And then how did you land here in, in Jackson Hole? Yeah, that's a good question. Let's see. Uh, I grew up in New Hampshire, uh, Landaff, New Hampshire, small town, about 300 people. There's more cows in the town than people. Uh, I grew up on a Christmas tree farm where my, my, my folks still live and, you know, stayed there in the North Country all through high school, went off to school in New York and studied computer science and math, started a teaching private schools initially through public schools. Um, and then I had a, a co-teacher from back east who was working for the Teton Science Schools who uh, reached out to me to see if I was available to teach. And I um, was flown out to Jackson, interviewed, got the job, and three months later, jumped in a U-Haul and moved myself out to Jackson around 2007 to teach math and physics at the Journey School at the time. And I've been here since. So 2007, moved here to teach math and physics? Yeah. Cool. Yeah, it's super fun. And tell me about being a, a teacher for math and physics physics. What was that like? I love teaching. You know, it's, um, you know, now that I'm working with adults, I, I, I reflect back on my time working with kids and it keeps you young. Uh, you know, they, they just have such vitality. They're curious, they're raw creatures and um, they're funny. And I just feel like it, it, it inspired me to be the best version of myself when working with them because I felt like I owed it to them because they came with such a raw character and personality. And so it was a, it was a, it was a pleasure and a treat to, to be a teacher. Math and physics are things I love. I'm very passionate about both of them. And I love principles and frameworks and rules and 
Um, I, I struggled in biology, you know, memorizing uh, of biology and, and just the vast amount of information you need to know to sort of build the landscape of biology is just something I struggled with. But like F equals MA, a, a formula that can be applied a thousand different ways and just finding out the nuances, the context to apply it appropriately, that was really resonated with me. And so I love teaching that principle. And it just seemed like such a, you know, for me, math is such a fundamental language that we can communicate and how we understand the world. And so it was it was, it was a treat. Cool. Can learn a lot through math. It tells a story, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. 100%. My little kids, they're still learning. And my youngest, we're always giving them math, little math quizzes or our oldest one will, who's nine, will give them word problems and let them figure that type of stuff out. It, it's fun to hear. You can tell when they're guessing and when they're actually know that they processed it and are giving an answer, whether it's wrong or right, you can just see the difference in their reactions to the response. Absolutely. It's it's a lot of fun. How old are your kids? Lewis is nine and William is seven. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. Great age. They they are all ages are great ages, even where we this are now. <laughs> this is true. One hundred percent. I agree with you absolutely. As long as we make it a great age. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> what we do with it. I agree. And so you grew up on a Christmas tree farm. How big of a Christmas tree farm is this? Like people coming and cutting their own? What What's this place like? Yeah, uh, we have about 5,000 trees. Uh, there's about 25 acres and it's a mix. My dad's good friend does purchases about between 500 and 1,000 trees each year uh, wholesale to distribute around New England to bring down the city to sell on store street corners. And then my dad sells, choose and cut about 100 to 150 trees every year. And then he replants somewhere between 500 and 800 trees every year. Uh, he has a local baseball team comes up and spends a couple hours uh, replanting those trees every spring uh, that were cut the previous year. Uh, growing up, I would fertilize the trees and I would be in the, in the garage with a propane heater, a, a, a you know, bin of, uh, of butter cookies and cinnamon hot cider and um, folks and families would come and, you know, you'd point them in the right direction. And when they came back with a tree, um, you'd help wrap it for them and get the kids cookies. And uh, it was amazing. You know, I, I reflect on my dad now that he's retired and he, you know, he's not as connected because he doesn't work as much to the community. And so every Christmas time though, there's a month where hundreds of people come and he gets to say hello and interact with the community. And it's a moment of pure joy for families most of the time. Sometimes there's some screaming and there's some freaking out and all that. But generally speaking, it's a, it's a moment of, of family uh, fun and family joy. And so it's, um, I, I, I'm very happy that my dad continues that tradition and gets to experience that in, as he's retired. That's, that's awesome. How'd your dad get into being a Christmas tree farmer? I'm just very curious yeah. about this. Yeah, yeah. So he, he um, is an, was an environmental consultant. So he's always sort of studied and worked um, with with animals and plants and and ecosystems. And so I think, uh, you know, he had a passion for trees. His 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 good friend did a similar thing, uh, working with trees. And so I think that you know those two pieces certainly were some of the the motivation. And I think then you know from a financial perspective, it allowed you know my family to maintain agricultural status with their property in New Hampshire. So there was some. There was some incentive in that regard, but I think generally it was just his studies of of trees and nature, and he, you know, he spent his career walking around the woods, and so he mm -hmm. just loved trees and plants. That's beautiful. And 
is there family who's taking this over or now that your dad's retired? He's still doing it. So it's just him. And so he, you know, it's what he does in his retirement now. So it's his hobby. Okay. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, it's great. You should start a Christmas tree farm here in, in Jackson. <laughs> when my wife and I purchased our house, uh, gosh, 11, 12 years ago, my dad, you know, was like, always, you know, I'll send you a tree. And so his friend has a tree, a Christmas tree shipping business. And uh -huh. they packaged the tree up in like a box that was like 10 inches by 10 inches. And it was perfect. You like cut the bottom of the box off, put it in the stand, and you like cut the box off. And the tree just goes pop. It pops right out of the box. And it was like the easiest thing ever. That was the only year we did it. My wife was like, no way are we like having a Christmas tree shipped across the country. It's not environmentally sustainable. It's just, you know. That's funny. I know some people so, that have, they didn't want to harm a tree, so they went and bought one. And then yeah. afterwards, they went and planted it in their yard. No. And they like bought like a, like with a root ball. Yeah. It was more, say, like a big plant or a big tree that was in a planter. So then when it was done, they just planted a tree in their, in their yard. Now they have this beautiful tree in their yard that, you know, 20 years later. But they only did it once, maybe twice. <laughs> There's... A, only so many times unless you have a lot of land to go plant those trees. So you've been here since 2007. You started off at Teton Science Schools. And you said that you're not teaching kids anymore. You're now working with adults. So what's what's going on in your world now? Yeah, I have kind of two things I do primarily with my time, you know, in terms of, the, you know, in terms of community. One is I'm the executive director of the Children's Museum. You know, I've been in that position for three years. Uh, and the other is I'm a, a volunteer with Teton County Search and Rescue, and I've been doing that for the last 13 years or so. So um, those are kind of the two big places that I I connect. And it's interesting. What, you know, Search and Rescue is like from a time perspective, it's you know the emergency that the the impact is immediate. It's something has happened, and you respond to it in the moment. It's the, kind of the most emergent form of a time scale. And then on the opposing spectrum, I work with kids now, or I support institutions that work with kids. And it's sort of like trying to cultivate a, a more constructive, positive community that's like 20 to 30 years from now, where, you know, the, the impacts you'll have on their life are, um, you know, hopefully happen immediately and they have joy in the moment. And, and that's the goal. Um, but there are the larger philosophical, you know, outcomes we seek of, of cultivating a, a more positive and constructive society. And that's on a decadal scale. So it's kind of funny that I have two sides of the spectrum. Yeah, but you find other ways. You you find multitude of ways to engage your your life into the community. And thank you for being a search and rescue volunteer. It's a lot of work. You guys put in multitude of hours for training, and and that doesn't even include the hours that you get called out for for the rescues for the search and rescues themselves. Thank you. It's a it is a. It is an honor and a privilege to be on that team, and uh, I enjoy it wholeheartedly. Now, just talking about search and rescue a little bit, do people have kind of a specialty? Like some people are better at more, it, say, whitewater rescue than maybe um, if it's something with rock climbing or in the mountaineering world. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, everyone's got their, you know, there's so many disciplines and every person's got something that they are, that they're more comfortable with. And so, yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, the expectation is people show up and support. And then there are folks that take a leadership role in various disciplines to, to keep, have the confidence to, 
to in, you know initiate and follow through with a rescue with all the components you need. Would you say that you have a discipline that you specialize in or a few dis- disciplines? So for me, it's I'm a generalist typically in life, but I'd say that you know my comfort is in the mountains with snow. You know, so backcountry skiing is you know a domain. You know, avalanche spaces, environments, that's a space for me. I'm also on the TIPS team, which is the Teton Interagency Peer Support. So being an educator and being a executive director, I'm typically tasked with working very effectively with people. And so I support the team and think in terms of its, you know, the soft skills of navigating trauma and supporting, you know, leadership initiatives and, you know, working through conflict in that capacity as it takes you know, these people are interacting with each other. So it requires, you know, cohesive team. And I think that's a space that I also lean into and, and work with, work well with. Very nice. Did you become a backcountry skiing enthusiast when you moved here or growing up in New Hampshire and, and back east? Is that where you found your passion for that? In college, uh, I actually met a good friend who lived in Jackson. He's third generation Jackson resident. And I came out one year um, with him and stayed with his family and like, the, you know, it took the bindings off of my skis and put old school Dina fit on my skis and gave me a pair of boots and away we went and wandering around, you know, mail cabin and hiking up glory. And so I, I sort of, my initial ex- exposure to backcountry skiing was here in Jackson uh, with some lo- long time local folks. So. What a great way to be introduced into the backcountry. Amazing college versus so many people just go straight to the village, but to have the opportunity to go with somebody who, who knew the area you were going in. Yeah. Virginia Heide Cooper was the original. I don't know if you know Virginia Heide Cooper at all. Mm-hmm. Um, so it was her family that I, I went to college with her grandson. Uh, Nate. Oh, cool. So uh, that's, I, I, you know, so I got really you know, deeply immersed into some of the, some of the original families of the Valley in that way. And that was, it was very, I didn't, I didn't realize that at the time it was only, upon moving out here and understanding the families. And I got a sense of that. So she was a pioneer in the backcountry ski world. Yes, she was. Yeah. And she took the picture of Bill Briggs, uh, you know, after he skied it. (laughs) Totally. Exactly. Nobody nobody believed the guy. Now you are now the executive director of the Jackson Hole Children's Museum. What's the importance of having a children's museum in, in communities? Mm. I think at its core, it's about kids and kids and families, right? And you know, I think if I were to you know wax philosophical, I think you know our society is changing uh, so rapidly, and you know our institutions you know, that are that have served us so well for decades and centuries, um, you know, older institutions take a long time to evolve and change. And um, I think our institution is small enough, new enough to be able to evolve to a lot, to meet the demands, to be able to serve the community as new demands arise. So I think the value of our children's museum or a children's museum is to create a a space where kids feel seen and new moms can find friends. um, And it's an opportunity to have fun and all for all kids to have fun and to explore and to create and to, to do something unique and to be celebrated for what they do that is unique. And so I think there's tremendous value. I think we have great breadth. I think we're the, I would say when we move into our new facility, um, we probably have the opportunity to be the only institution in the Valley to have a touch point with every single child 
in this community. And so that's really special and something I think we'll, we're, we're excited to be moved towards and strive towards that. And something we take great pride in of being able to give every kid a chance to be celebrated for who they are and help them be seen as a unique individual. And I think that's really um, something all people deserve. How will the Children's Museum have a touch point for every child in this community? That That's a bold statement. Yeah, I think key to that is our partnership with the school district, you know, and, and we partner with, you know, you and the administration and the students uh, to bring science uh, programming. We refer to it as STEAM, science, technology, engineering, art, and math, but I think it's often easier just to reference science. And so we go into every single classroom and work with every teacher to build uh, an enrichment program that caters to their curricular needs, to the state standards that they need to meet. And so, you know, that there hits 90% of the kids. Hmm. Uh, and then doing that with the private schools is the next stage when we have the stability and the capacity would be the next stage to, to serve those kids that attend private schools. Uh, and then the third element would be the homeschool families, uh, families that have chosen to work with, to do their own, have their own educational programming. So that's within the school age, that, that would be those three segments. And then for kids under five, Right now, we, we serve over half. I think we had a touch point with over 500 kids um, this year that were under age of five. And there's about 200 kids per, per age. So there's about 1,000 kids under the age of five, about 2,000 kids under the age of 10. And so, and that's the kind of the age range I'm talking about here is, is kids under 10 is really the touch point for all those kids, not, not middle school and high school at this stage in the game. Um, and so we would like to partner with every single daycare and, and get them into our spaces, work with our educators, utilize our resources. Because it's hard. It's hard to be a daycare in this valley. It's hard to be an educator in this valley. And we see ourselves as a partner with everybody and, and to, to help support and um, spread the love and to spread the, the responsibility for serving kids. How long has the Children's Museum been around here in Jackson? We were founded in 2011. KJ and Craig Morris founded it uh, about, and that's probably about, we're coming up on 12 years ago. And is the current vision and mission of what you guys are doing in alignment with what their original vision was? Or because you mentioned how small and new what an organization is that you, you've made changes with how society's demand changes? Uh, I'd say to, to most accurately answer that question, you'd have to ask them. But <laughs> I think that KJ is still on our board uh, and she and I still regularly chat. And I would say that you know, as we move to a new facility, that that will be the chance for us to really express who we are uh, in its all of what we hope to be uh, as we've navigated the pandemic and as we've navigated a loss of facility the last nine months. Uh, it's been really difficult for us to express ourselves in all the ways we wanted to express ourselves. And, and so I think that there are certain gaps that KJ would love to see brought to life that have not been possible because of the adversity we faced. Um, and I think we're both, I think KJ and I are both aligned that once we, we move to a new facility that we'll be able to, to bring to life her and their vision for the organization. And it's one that I share too, which is to serve all those kids in the Valley under 10 that, that need an opportunity to be celebrated. And considering you haven't had a facility for the past nine months, has the Children's Museum still been operating at some level? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think our partnership with the school district has been tremendous. Uh, you know, again, that STEAM programming, we've been able to go off-site. Typically, 
classes would come to us. So we've gone to the school district and been able to hit every classroom still. Um, we still run our after-school programs also at the school district. We've been able to offer after-school programs at the library. We continue running our summer camps. This year, we'll be operating out of Jackson Elementary School. And we also have had our facility, we've shared a facility down at Jackson Hole Indoor, uh, that new soccer arena facility, indoor soccer arena um, down south of town. And we've been there three days a week to continue to run our sort of day morning programs for families to come and use exhibits and play structures and bouncy houses that they have down there at their spaces. You guys have been very nimble. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's been, you know, I, I've been fortunate enough to be in my office here. I like look at the Tetons and work at my desk and, and you know, take my dogs for a walk. And my staff have carried the, the majority of the burden of having, you know, they work, at their, their offices are the backs of their cars, the back of their trucks. You know, they've got bins covered in snow and dirt and mud that they're dragging between classes and different buildings and driving up to Kelly, driving out to Alta, Wyoming, you know, they go all over the valley uh, to provide our services. And, and so they have, they've carried the brunt of this, of this transition for sure. That's some miles to cover driving over to Alta and driving out to Kelly. And you guys make it up to Moran school as well. Yeah. Moran as well. Absolutely. That's, that's awesome. It's, it's great. They, and the, you know, the schools, the teachers love it. I mean, when I, I've only visited the classroom a couple of times and, and every time I do, the teachers are effusive with their praise and, appreciation for the hard work our, our educators um, bring to, to support their kiddos. Usually when you hear the term museum, you think of a place that has art or it, something that's been created that is an on exhibit for people to embrace, absorb, enjoy. For what you all are doing and around the country where there's children's museums that are very interactive and offering program that you all offer. How does the term museum correlate to that? That's a good question. I, I think my, the, the humorous response I would give to friends is that we have children in formaldehyde. Um, <laughs> I'll bring my right. boys over tomorrow. <laughs> What's that? I'll bring my kids over tomorrow. We'll shove them in there. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. But I think you're, you know, we've struggled with that for a, for a while in that people's perceptions of museums, you know, people have preconceived notions of museums and, and I th we think we believe and we've done some research, we've, we've updated our mission and we've evaluated at least to, to some degree uh, the utility of changing our name. And I think that uh, children's museums, when you've got that, you know, descriptor out in front of children's that, that there is a known experience that goes along with that. And what we found when we surveyed the community is that over 60% to 80% of the community or, or the majority of our community knew, you know, what we were and who we were. Um, they didn't know the full breadth. And so I think we have um, some communication that we have to, to, you know, work with, with the community uh, to help them understand the, the full breadth of, of how we serve the community. But I think generally speaking, folks have gone to children's museums around the country and experienced the interactive, engaging uh, nature of the work. And so I think that um, while there are a huge domain of museums that don't resonate with what our work is, I think the, the typically chosen museums is, is known to be a, a place of joy and fun for kids. Thank you for helping understand that more. For me, the way I look at it just personally is you go to a museum to, to look and to, to learn. Ultimately, it's to learn. And I think that's what the kids are doing. Well, I know that they're doing it because my kids have been a part of the program, Children's Museum. 
since they could walk. Totally. Yeah. yeah. And thank you for for using our spaces and and to and yeah. participating in the fun. What where we've landed recently is that you know I think the most resonant term that the community um, has associated with our work is creativity, uh, and that you know the kids' opportunity to create something uh, through all of the different programs and offerings and services, um, and through that they do learn and then also play. So I think creativity and play are the mechanisms that we use uh, to get kids to learn and to grow as people. Adults can need to learn too. Oh my gosh. Much <laughs> more we? difficult. Adult yeah. learning is much more difficult. They have to want to learn. Whereas kids, the kid, they just sort of naturally learn. Yeah, they do. They're, they're ready for it. Yeah. They're born for it. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm, I'm very excited to learn more about this new facility that will be a permanent home for you all. Um, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from one of our sponsors, and then we're going to come back and learn about this new location. Teton County Solid Waste and Recycling estimates that approximately 3,662 tons of food waste are disposed of in the trash in Teton County every year. This makes food waste the next frontier material in the quest to achieve the county's goal to reduce, aiming for zero waste. For more information on Teton County, ISWR's residential and commercial food waste programs, visit tetoncountywy.gov slash recycle. Change begins with each of us, one day at a time. Ethan, welcome back. We were just talking about the definition and what the means behind a museum, why I call the facility that you run a museum. And uh, we're talking about learning and you guys have now acquired a lease for a new facility that will be more of a permanent home for you. Where Where is it? And what's this going to mean to the Children's Museum as an organization? Yeah, we actually don't have our lease yet. I'm actually okay. going for the commissioners tomorrow uh, at 9 a.m. Uh, to sort of iron out some of the last details of that lease. But we were selected last September to be the, the owner of that lease. And so we're, we're still in the final negotiations with the county staff and uh, county uh, commissioners for 105 Marcel. So on the truck route through town, on the north end of town, uh, if you were to turn off onto Marcel Lane to bypass town square, uh, there's a brand new building. It's three stories. Top two stories are uh, affordable residential units for ownership by local workforce housing or by local workforce members. Um, and the bottom uh, story is owned by the county. It's about 7,000 square feet, just, just shy of 7,000 square feet. And we have about 5,100 square feet allocated for us. And then about 1,700 square feet are allocated for Happy Kids Daycare, a Latino daycare center uh, that will be based out of that bottom floor of that uh, three-story facility. And so, yeah, we're, we go in front of the commissioners tomorrow. Uh, we hope to have a, a lease by the end of the month. And in the meantime, we are starting to go through the permitting process, uh, getting building permits and conditional use permits to be able to, to complete the construction of that space so that we can bring all of our programs back to one location. What can people look forward to seeing? What's been the vision of yourself and the people helping design this new space? What, what will be the same? What would be new and different that we wouldn't see at the past locations that you've had? Yeah, so we've hired, well, we, we are under, we've selected uh, a design firm out of San Francisco, uh, Gyroscope Inc. They do, um, they are nationally recognized. They were sort of the keynote 
business at the regional or the national children's museum conference this year. They're experts in the field of children's museums. And so we're bringing them in this summer to work with us to design what the space will really look like and how we express ourselves there. I would say that initially, you know, we're planning investing, you know, upwards of a million dollars in exhibits, whereas the first 10 years, uh, we had about probably thirty dollars to $50,000 in exhibits that were made by local craftsmen locally. They did an amazing job of building out the exhibits that we had over the first 10 years of our, of our lifetime. Um, and they all reached their natural sort of you know, terminus as we lost our space. So our exhibits are going to be world-class exhibits designed around our place. You know, I think place-based education and Reggio Emilia education are two philosophies that we believe in. And so we want to really make sure that the experience in our children's museum resonates with, with our local community in all sorts of different ways, be it the watersheds, you know, be it the tram, be it the airport. You know, there's all sorts of ways that, um, you know, be it a, a climber that looks like a mountain. So it's uh, giving kids the experience of climbing the Tetons at three years old. Hmm. So that'll be a, a large part of what will be fresh and new and, and invested in from a, from a very visual standpoint. I think from a programmatic standpoint, we'll also have a, a 1,100 square foot classroom, most likely. So we'll have a large classroom that will allow us to continue to run all the STEAM programs we've done in the school district. And it'll create a space where we can partner with all sorts of institutions around the valley. I think one of our hallmarks as an organization is our willingness to work with other people and to create a space where, you know, St. John's bereavement groups or mindfulness for mamas or the Teton Literacy Center or the Children's Learning Center. Um, can come and do kid programming with kids and parents at the same time, or the parents can stay in one space and the kids can go into the museum. I think we'll be able to support all educational institutions and all families to cultivate an experience that is meaningful for them. And we are just the stewards of that space and and helping support with our educators and our expertise in in programs and spaces to make sure that you know kids have fun, they're creative, they're learning, and um, and the community is served in that way. I want to ask you a few questions. You you mentioned two things about learning. I, I believe you said place-based education, and then you also mentioned Reggio Emilia learning methods. Yeah. Could you expand on those two and, and what they mean? Definitely. I'll, I'll kind of try and be brief. My, my training at science school was in place-based education, mm -hmm. and it's trying to, at its core, acknowledge the fact that sort of there are natural ecosystems and human ecosystems that make up our place and learning should be embedded into those ecosystems. Students should be aware of their role and their relationship to natural ecosystems and they should be aware of and of their role in human ecosystems, groups of people, individuals. And so I think that's one way to think about place-based education is really trying to attune yourself to the human, cultural, and ecological systems that we as individuals coexist with and, and trying to honor that framework and those lenses to be able to you know, understand how they impact us and how we impact them. And so that's okay. place-based education. Reggio Emilia is, is based out of Italy. And I don't know as strongly about Reggio Emilia, but it's typically a pre-kindergarten-based educational philosophy. And it originates with the idea that, you know, the adults should provide guidance to kids, or excuse me, they should provide an ecosystem environment where kids can you know, share where they're thinking, what's interesting to them, where 
what they'd like to learn. And with those ideas, the, the educators, the guides cultivate a whole myriad of experiences that are focused around student interest. And so it really, it's a, it's a philosophy that originates in student-centered uh, learning, where, where the kids are really driving the learning experiences and the adults are bringing in their external expectations, their external, you know, their external frameworks and guiding principles to help guide kids to learn how, whatever it is that the kids are curious about. You know, the kids express issues, I'm interested in airplanes and okay, let's like go tour the airport. Let's, um, you know, build an airplane, let's draw an airplane, let's do some research on an airplane. So it's, it's really, it's really oriented around the interest of a child. Hmm. That's cool. I remember my kids in Montessori and they learned about the Titanic, man, they read about it. They learned about it. They did drawings and pictures of the different levels of the boat and the people, and they really got into it. Totally. And, and, and I think, yeah. the, you know, they're very similar type disciplines. And I, I think that the, you know, I'm sure these, if anyone is, is I am a uh, very ignorant of the fine details of the various disciplines. I'm sure an expert in the fields would, would critique me on that statement. But um, I think at the end of the day, when we're paying attention to what kids are interested in, uh, at a particularly young age, it, it really helps the learning to be so much more absorbable and interesting to them. How do you feel knowing the impact that you're making on these kids and the future of our society? Well, you know, lately it's been hard. Uh, you know, I'm I'm much I'm disconnected from the experience of the kids. You know, I, I being in my office and not in the museum where I can see it and hear it and and happening in real time is difficult. So I'm, I feel much more disconnected than I I did as a teacher. So that's been tough. Uh, yeah, that's a, that's a nuanced question. Of, <laughs> I think in terms of evaluating how I feel around education, I think it gives me hope. You know, I I, I think. You know, getting bogged down in uh, newsreels and you know staff or you know adult conflict, you know interpersonal conflicts at all stages, where we are super passionate about political parties or you know climate change, all sorts of issues where you can you know you can get deeply polarized around. Kids bring a freshness to life, and and so I feel very honored and lucky uh, to be able to to be in a profession that gets rejuvenated daily, yearly with the smiles and the laughter and the joy that kids bring to this world. And so, yeah, it's something I'm very, you know, I, I, I lose sight of sometimes in my, my, my world is dealing with board meetings and fundraising and leases and contracts and, you know, those types of, that's my day to day. But when I stop and remember why I'm doing the work or, you know, why it's important, it, 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 it does bring me a sense of fulfillment. That's beautiful. Thank you for, for doing the work, for providing that space for our kids. Thank you for asking the question. Yeah. Um, I see every day with my kids and my kids' friends of what goes on in their minds and the things that they pick up. And it is just mind-blowing. I think you said it earlier, they're sponges for, for learning and any opportunity, whether it's through the Children's Museum or, or any other, it, it, it's all connected. In my opinion, it's a matter of having the more ways for the kids to be exposed to learn, the better the kids are going to be as adults. Absolutely. I agree. And that's the hope, right? And, you know, that in, you know, in a generation from now, the world will be a better place because we, you know, we, we taught our kids right. And we gave them the chance to be their best people. Yeah. And it even comes down to as simple as, you know, when kids have 
they have to pick something up and put it away. The more that type of stuff is reinforced, <laughs> the more they understand that they have a responsibility of every action that they take, that they're, they have a responsibility to follow through with those actions because you can't just leave it for somebody else. Absolutely. Yeah. And so when is there a hope, a plan as far as when the Marcel unit will come to fruition for you all? At this stage, we're hoping next summer. I think uh -huh. if we're, you know, if we're able to get designs in place and permits in place by this fall, then it gives us six to nine months to complete the, the construction. We need to put in a couple of bathrooms. Uh, we got to build out these exhibits, put up a couple walls. Uh, so, you know, hopefully that that phase of construction shouldn't take much longer than nine months. It's really hard. It's been one of the lessons I've been learning is patience with the, the leasing, the permitting, and the construction timelines mm -hmm. in this community. It's just we, we have a very um, constrained workforce in all layers, and that manifests particularly in these types of complex or complicated uh, processes. And so, so, yeah, I think we're hoping summer 2024 we should be open and away we go. You mentioned helping working with patients. You've had to be patient. What are, what are things that you do personally and professionally to help you stay grounded and remember, hey, I've got to just follow the process. I've got to be patient. What do you do? It's been, it has been a quite the roller coaster ride for me personally and professionally over the last three years, as you can, you know, I'm sure can appreciate navigating educational institutions during the pandemic um, and with many stakeholders, you know, the more stakeholders you have, the more opinions you have and, and people care very passionately about their kids and about their families. And that brings with it a lot of emotion. And so it's been, it's been tough. I slowly in, as those difficult moments have arisen and those conflicts have arisen, I've, I've recognized how important it is for me to be grounded. And so I've really dedicated myself to my practices. I would say I practice about an hour of meditation a day, followed by about an hour of yoga. And so I kind of dedicate about two hours every morning to my stability and just to have compassion and to have balance for the myriad of opinions and personalities that I interface with, to navigate those with grace, with humility, and with gratitude. Um, so that has been fundamental for me in those two practices. And then beyond that, it's just you know eating healthy, spending time with friends, connecting, expressing my gratitude, uh, making sure that like the story I tell in the world is a story of gratitude, is a story of, of joy and of love for the people that matter to me the most, and that that continues to fill my cup. You know, it's it's amazing. Uh, I've had some experiences of, of forgiveness, of, of asking for forgiveness and seeking forgiveness and realizing that like when you're grateful for things and when, you're for, when you forgive other people, you do it for yourself. Like, uh, you know, sure, it's these are wonderful gestures to put out there in the world, but they also, you also do it to to be at peace with yourself. And so these are the, these are the efforts I make to try and maintain balance in a, in a very emotion-packed environment. When you started meditating, was it for an hour? No. No? No. My meditations would be you know, up to 10 minutes, five to 10 minutes initially. Um, and then I went to a Vipassana retreat uh, about three years ago, just before the pandemic hit, right before I started this job. And that was 10 days of, of silent meditation. And that kind of kicked me off on this path. And then this winter, I went back to a refresher three days. And after I came back from that refresher, it really like 
it instilled in me the importance of continuing with an hour a day. And I'm supposed to be doing two hours a day. I'm supposed to be doing an hour in the morning, an hour at night. And I, I do an hour in the morning. And that's kind of been my my commitment at this stage in the game. So thank you for sharing that personal side of yourself. I appreciate it. Um, no, no, thank you for asking. I struggle with meditating a few days of the week, even for 10 minutes. <laughs> but I do make an effort of taking the time a few days a week to meditate and then finding time a few days a week to making the time, I should say, to journal, which is another way to find gratitude in life for me as well. So it's wonderful to hear what you do. And, and it's it's nice to hear from other people. Do you have prompts in your journaling? Do you have like some something that you repeat when you journal, like you, you respond to a prompt at all? Or are you just sort of like getting what's out in your mind on paper? It's more of getting out what's on my mind and paper. And if there's thoughts that I'm processing to process it through the journaling helps me out. I'm, I have been learning about prompts and I'm learning more about that. And as I learn more, it's something that I a desire to put into practice, but I need to research it a little bit more and see what's there. So growing and learning as, as even as an adult. Oh, 100% is constant. And I, I have some mentors in my, in both my yoga and meditation practices. And it's just like, I still feel like an amateur. And even though I have a very, what I consider a very disciplined practice and um, it's inspiring to see people that have dedicated their lives to these trajectories um, of mental and physical health in that regard. And it's, it's inspiring for sure. Yeah. The one thing that we forget about is our mental health. We exercise like crazy or eat well or do everything else for our physical health, but we have to tie that into the mental health too for a full holistic, healthy body, healthy being. So Ethan, um, how can we find updates and to keep track of what's going on with, with you and your, the staff of the children's museum? Yeah. Um, I mean, Jackson Hole children's museum.org or sorry, excuse me. JH children's museum.org is our website where, you know, we're on social media, Instagram, Facebook. Those are the, probably the, the best places. Well, actually first best is to come. Well, actually it's really difficult without a physical location. I'm saying if you see us in person ever ask, right? That's the, you know, the, the human interaction, that's where you're going to get the, the real story. Mm-hmm. But Barring that, um, our our digital presence on our website, jhchildrenmuseum.org, Instagram, Facebook, we'll, we keep those pretty regularly updated. There's great opportunities there. But yeah, we're, we're about people too, and that's important. Oh, fabulous. Well, I want to give a quick shout out to one of your educators that we, my family's had a lot of interaction with, with Anna, and she is just remarkable with, with the kids, and they just lean to her so well. And you see her interaction with the kids when she's teaching them, especially different science projects. And it's people like Anna and the other staff that, that make that place really, really hum. Uh, Anna and Tessa, we, we know them well in our family. I awesome. <laughs> just want to give them a little shout out. Well, I appreciate that. Yeah. Well, Ethan, I so appreciate you sharing a part of yourself and a part of what you're doing for our community and with the Children's Museum and you being a volunteer on the search and rescue today has been wonderful. Steph, I really appreciate the time to share. It's, um, it's an honor and I appreciate all the hard work you do. And I know as a school board member, um, you know, and as a business owner, it's you're deeply immersed in our community as well. And, and I know how important the work you do is and, uh, and how hard it can be. So I, I honor you as well. So thank you. 
You're welcome. Thank you. I don't take praise very well, but so thank you. It was very nice of you to say that. <laughs> That's why I love doing this, doing the podcast, having this is I get an, I have an opportunity to, to talk to people one-on-one and learn more about what's going on out there in, in our community. It's, and it's great. I'm sure it's been a, a wonderful experience for you to connect with people for an hour and to kind of do a bit of a deep dive in a, yeah, it is. Well, I've learned a lot more about you than when we just see each other at Rotary for a few minutes. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, for that hour on Tuesday. So hopefully we'll see you this Tuesday at Rotary. I'll be there. All right. Awesome. Well, Ethan, go have a phenomenal day. Go make it a great day today. And, and I am so grateful for your time today. Thank you. Thank you. To learn more about Ethan and his work with the Jackson Hole Children's Museum, visit the thejacksonholeconnection.com, episode number 247. Thank you, Michael, for keeping this podcast going through the marketing and the editing and production. Folks, if you want to do a podcast, reach out to Michael. He can help you out. And thank you to my wife, Laura, and my boys, Lewis and William. I appreciate you all listening. All of you fans who listen, share this podcast with your friends and families or somebody that you haven't connected with in a while. I do appreciate you sharing your time with me today. And cheers till next week for the next episode of the Jackson Hole Connection.